So um, it will come as a great shock to those of you that have gotten to know me over the years, but um, I have never been much of a, a fashion magnet. I have never really, yes, I know, shocking, we can't believe it. Um, I, I've never been one that paid attention basically to fashion. I didn't much care as long as, you know, the colors and whatever I was wearing matched and Tony picked it out, it was all good. And so, so I don't really have that kind of, I don't have a lot of fashion sense. But the reason I'm sharing all this is I have heard and people said that the key to good fashion is that it's all about the shoes. I don't know if that's true, but I've heard it's all about the shoes. So um, today... It's all about the shoes. I um, based the entire outfit on the shoes. Now, if you haven't been here in a couple weeks, you're thinking that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I would normally agree, except if you recall, my foot is broken and it's still healing. Last week, I decided I was fine and I wore dress shoes for the services. Dumb idea. Dumb idea. So I went back to the, to the Crocs. When I, when I got diagnosed when I went and had the x-ray done, the doctor said, you've got two choices, you know, because there's not a whole lot we can do. Uh, you can either go buy a post-op boot, you know, wear the boot, which is exactly what Tony said I should have done. Repeatedly, she told me that's what I should have done. Or he said, you can go get some Crocs and just wear Crocs. And I chose the Crocs. And they have worked very well. So I'm in the Crocs today because I didn't get the post-op boot because I didn't listen to my wife and didn't do what I was told. And I am shamed publicly for it. But um, so anyway, everything is based on the shoes. And I will say, I've had Crocs for years. I always hated them. I thought they were the dumbest shoe ever. I will confess, I have been converted. I believe I like my Crocs. So I'm figuring out how I can wear these every Sunday, even when I'm healed. Will you believe if I say in a year, well, my foot's still healing, so I'm wearing my Crocs. Um, so anyway, um, I just, that has nothing to do with anything. I just felt like sharing this morning. So uh, let's get to some things that do have something significant to say this morning, and that is our scripture. And it is specifically our scripture today, which comes in the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, is found in the, the, at the 20th verse, uh, just one of those experiences that the Gospels record uh, of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Some of the stuff that he dealt with that I think and know speaks very deeply to our own human experience. So we're going to begin again, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. 
Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. We pray, brothers and sisters, that God would add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's, let's pray. Lord, that we would be about your will, united by your Holy Spirit and drawn close to Christ who calls us family, who calls us his own. Speak to us in these moments and challenge us, move us, drive us forward in faith. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Okay, quick survey. Who here likes criticism? Come on, nobody? Nobody likes to be criticized. Of course not. I didn't expect the first service, same amount of people, and I'll put my hand down because I don't like it either. Nobody likes to be criticized. It's just one of the unpleasant realities of life. And so let's just kind of name the focus today. Let's, let's name right out of the gate what, what we're going to be talking about today, and that is criticism. We're going to be talking about criticism because there are a couple options we have when we begin to to talk about and name the, the, the human experience of criticism. And one is, we can seek to avoid it. We can seek to live our lives in such a way that we avoid being criticized. And there is a formula for doing it. If, if you want to avoid criticism, you need to write this down because this is going to be the most impactful sermon you've ever heard. There are three important steps. They're not original to me. Uh, they're attributed to a number of pe- people. Aristotle is one. Um, But there's a formula, three things you can do so you will not be criticized. So here you go. Write these down. One, do nothing. Two, say nothing. Three, be nothing. If you want to avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. If that is your goal, you're dismissed. You're good. Sermon's over for you. If you want to do nothing, say nothing, be nothing, it's finished. That's the end of it, and you've got your marching orders. The next thing you need to know is go find a cave to live in by yourself because that's how that's going to happen. Now, recognizing that I don't think any of us, I don't believe any of us aspire to do nothing, be nothing, and say nothing, then the question becomes what do we do with the inevitable truth, which is, quite simply, we will be criticized in life. Now, I know that is not... That's not an aha moment. That is not something you're going to go, wow, I never realized it. No, you know because you've experienced it. Again, anybody anybody not ever been criticized? Let's see, I want to see who that person is. I didn't think so. So we know. We know that criticism is a part of life. So the challenge for us is to begin to think intentionally about how do we respond to it. We know it's inevitable. We know it's going to come. I don't know how many times we've ever really thought, you or me, have thought about how do I process, deal, respond to criticism? Because there's a lot of options we have. One option is you meet criticism with criticism. You fight back. You you think of the things. This is the the conversations we have. If you're like me, uh, when criticism comes or you, you feel attacked, you think of wonderful things to say about two to three hours after you wish you'd said them. I mean, you ever have those? You're laying around, you're processing what is happening. 
man, that would have been a great, I should have said this or I should have said that. And you, I feel like I never come up with those words when I need them. I, I admire those who are able to be that quick or that witty, that fast on their feet. You know a great example of that? Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was a great example of somebody who was able to, to think on their feet and come back. And he had, certainly as a member of the British Parliament, as prime minister, he had his share of critics. And the most famous sparring partner, that you may have heard the story, it's fairly familiar, of Winston Churchill was Lady Nancy Astor. Uh, Nancy Astor was, a, was one of the first female members of the British Parliament. Winston Churchill was a sexist. He was wonderful, gift in a lot of ways, but he didn't, you know, he's a product of his time, and he didn't really believe women should be a part of the parliament. So the, he and, and Nancy Astor went back and forth, and they, they verbally sparred a lot. And, and if you go and you read the full, some of the history behind that, she held her own. She was, she did, she was not a, a whipping post, if you will. She, she held her own against Churchill, and they, they just did not get along. And most people knew that if you had a dinner party or a social gathering, you invited one or the other. You did not invite them both. And so they tried to kind of keep them separated, um, and, but inevitably things would happen. So the story's told. One night they were at a dinner party, and they both happened to be there. And they began to argue about politics, as was the norm. And finally, in exasperation, Lady Nancy Astor looked at Churchill and she exclaimed, Winston, if you were my husband, I would poison your coffee. If you were my husband, I would poison your coffee. To which Winston Churchill looked at her and said, Lady Astor, if you were my wife, I would drink the poison. <laughs> or I would drink the coffee, okay? That's quick. That's quick. Now I'm now I'm not I'm recommending that choice of behaviors. I'm not but but that's the way a lot of us wish we, we could respond, that we could be quick and that we could one up those who would criticize or, or demean or tear down or, or whatever that is. But but that's not while it might be the desired, it's it's not the healthiest. It's it's not I think the best way for us to respond, and, and so we have to begin to ask ourselves, how do we, as followers of Jesus, how are we called um, to respond to our critics, to those who inevitably s surface in our lives, who, who find our faults? It's, there's a, a Peanuts cartoon in which Linus is talking to his sister, Lucy, and he's kind of forlorn, and he, he looks and he says, Lucy, why do you always point out my faults? And she says, well, I, I have a knack for finding other people's faults. And he says, well, how come you never point out your own faults? And she says, oh, I have a knack for overlooking those. <laughs> okay, there are people we, and, and let's be honest, okay, let's, let's not play the victim here all too much. Let's recognize we have the knack for finding the faults of others. A lot easier than we have a knack for finding our own. That's why Jesus said it's easier, you know, we, we pick out the speck in our brother or sister's eye and we miss the log in our own. We do that. So, so let I do that. So let's be careful about, you know, putting ourselves on, on the victim side all the time and ask ourselves, where are we guilty of that? But the reality is we experience both ends of that. And a lot of times we, we certainly remember and we feel those moments when we, have those people in our lives that, that find our faults, that, that pick and criticize. And so if we aspire to, to be like Christ, let's see how Christ dealt with that. Because this passage in Mark chapter 3 is a story of Jesus dealing with his critics. And, and I, 
I, was, I loved it this week as I was studying and, and reading. I heard a, a phrase describing this uh, story in Mark that I had never heard before. And I kind of, as I do, I geek out for things like this. And I immediately told John all about it. And it's that this story is an example of what's called a Markin sandwich. M-A-R-K, Mark. A Markin sandwich. And that's the, the pattern that Mark would use on occasion in which he would start to tell one story then he would shift and tell another story, and he'd come back to his original story. And what he would do is he would show the interconnection between those two. So it's like he'd start with story A, he'd insert story B, and he comes back to story A. And that's what he does here. So we have this Mark and Sandwich. So let's kind of tell it in reverse. So let's look at it in reverse for a moment. And let's start with the inside of the sandwich, the middle story. Because the inside of the sandwich speaks to the critics that come from the outside. And the critics in Jesus' life that came from the outside most often were the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, those who believed they had the answer, they had the pattern, they had the model, they knew what it was meant to follow God and to be a believer. And they're the ones that come down, the Scripture says they came down from Jerusalem. They are coming with a purpose. And that purpose is to begin to undermine Jesus. They've heard of what he's doing. They've heard of what he's saying. They don't like it. They believe he is dangerous. They believe he is a problem. They believe he must be stopped. So they come to begin to erode or attempt to attack his credibility to erode anybody's trust in what he has to say. They know what he's been doing, and they want to come after it. So if you could step out of the story for a moment, if you could imagine that you don't know anything about Jesus, Mark 3 is the first you've ever heard, and you know these religious leaders are coming to attack Jesus, to criticize Jesus because of what he's been doing, then our inevitable question would be, well, what's he been doing? What's, what's he been doing to, to kind of um, draw their ire, their venom? And Mark 3, we don't have to go very far to begin to trace what Jesus has been doing. We read things. This is what he's been about. In the very first chapter of Mark, it says that a man was brought to him who had an unclean spirit, possessed, riddled with, with demons. It says that he cast the, demon, the unclean spirits out. He made the man well. And that begins to set a pattern. Then in Mark 1, there's a man that's brought to him who's a leper. And the Scripture says that he healed the man with leprosy, made him well. And in Mark chapter 2, somebody comes to him who's paralyzed, and Jesus makes him well. And then in Mark chapter 3, somebody comes who has a withered hand, a deform- and Jesus makes him well. In fact, it's inserted in there. And by the way, Mark kind of says he healed a lot of people. Oh, and, and he, he had a dinner party, or he was invited to a dinner party, and he had dinner with some unsavory characters. He had dinner with some people who had not lived their life very ethically very righteously, who had not treated others very well. They were, they were sinners. They were people like tax collectors, and he dared to have dinner with them. But you know what's interesting? By having dinner with them, they did not bring Jesus down to their level. He began to bring them up to his. And it, we know from the narrative of the Gospels that one of those tax collectors becomes a, a follower, and others become to follow. They change their life. They give up their, their, their unrighteous ways and, and the way that they had taken advantage of it. They repent. They change. They become better. This is what Jesus has been doing. Restoring and healing. Restoring and healing. It doesn't sound too bad. It sounds pretty noble. It sounds pretty incredible. And yet, the religious leaders come for him. Because in the midst of this, he said a few things they didn't like. You know, he said some pretty audacious things like, you know, if somebody's not well on the Sabbath, 
even though it's a day of rest, it's okay to make them well. It's more important to put people above policy. That didn't go over so well. And he kind of said things like, I have the power to forgive sins. And that didn't go over too well either. But the thing is, his life was marked by compassion and love and making a difference and blessing other people. And for that, he gets attacked. I mean, do, do you hear for what he was doing? We, we tend to think that he must have been doing bad things, but he wasn't. In fact, it was Machiavelli that said, hatred is gained as much by doing good as doing evil. And that's kind of a depressing thought. But Jesus becomes hated, and yet all he ever did was care and love and act compassionately toward others. But these outside his circle came to get him because he undermined and threatened them. So, we see critics that come from outside the, the inside inner circles. The critics, they're not Jesus' family, they're not his friends, they're not that close to him, but they're coming for him. And we kind of expect that. We know the story of the Gospels. We know Jesus constantly had these kind of critics. And we expect sometimes our critics are going to come from those who live, think, or behave differently than we do. It's, we're getting into politics season. We're never out of politics season, I guess. But the, we're a year and a half away from a presidential election, and everything's gearing up. And we're going to start to hear the, the attack ads soon. They're going to be all over our television screens. Every politician will tell you we don't like attack ads. And every politician does and uses attack ads. Because surveys say they work, which says something about us. But they work. But, but we expect it. You know, we expect a Democrat's going to rep- attack a Republican, a Republican, a Democrat, this contender with that contender. That, that's kind of the norm. And we kind of expect those outside sometimes are going to criticize us. That's where part of Jesus' criticism comes. But then we look at the outside of the story, the bookends. And this is what we learn in the bookends, that sometimes the criticism comes from the inside. The outside of the stories is about the critics that come from the inside. Jesus had a family. Of course he had a family. He was a son. He was a brother. He was probably an uncle. Can you imagine somebody coming, Uncle Jesus, you know? But, but he had probably had nieces and nephews, cousins. He had a family unit the way that we do. And a family unit he'd spend 30 years of his life with and, and family meals and family gatherings and they knew him as, the, as Joseph's boy. And they knew him as, as Jesus, you know, our, our relative, our friend, our, our family member. And all of a sudden, this every, or, everyday ordinary guy, Jesus, who they knew and loved and cared about, he starts doing some miraculous things. And people start listening to him, and people start coming to hear him, and they call him rabbi, and they call him teacher. And even some people start to say, he's the Messiah. And they hear this. And the Scripture said they came for him to take hold of him, to get him out, because this is what they thought. He is out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. Those who were closest to him, who mattered most to Jesus in in that family structure, I shouldn't say mattered most, because everybody mattered most to Jesus, but who would we ascribe to be the closest to him? They think he's crazy. They think he's lost his mind. And, And what we learn here is that sometimes our critics and we know this come from the inside. And those are the most painful wounds that we experience. Those are the most painful, I think. They are for me. I expect sometimes outside critics. But the ones who have been closest, the closest friends, church members, family, whatever it is, their criticisms, they tend to wound the deepest. They tend to scar the most. And they're the hardest to process. And Jesus dealt with that too. 
And so we have to ask, so, so basically here's, the, here's the, the, the gist of the story. Critics come from everywhere. They come from everywhere. That sounds pleasant, doesn't it? So we know, again, it happens. So the question is, how do we deal with it? How do we process this reality? Because it's not pleasant, and we don't like it, and we don't embrace it mostly. But how do we process it? Because there's a tendency, there's a risk for us to become wound lickers. You ever heard of a wound licker? Wound licker is somebody who can't let it go. The, the, the phrase comes from a story that I read about um, a dog by the name of Hannibal. Hannibal is a great Pyrenees. I didn't know much about these dogs. They're massive, like St. Bernard kind of sized dogs. They're ginormous dogs, and they were between 110 and 130 pounds. So they're basically horses. And um, the story of Hannibal is that one day, Hannibal got a little minor cut on the very end of his tail, a little surface wound, um, a flesh wound, uh, all you Monty Python fans. It's just a flesh wound. And um, some of you are like, what? (laughs) Some of you got it. And it was inconsequential. It shouldn't matter at all, except Hannibal couldn't let it go. And he licked it. And he'd curl up in a ball, and he'd lick it, and he'd lick it, and he opened it up, and he made it worse, and it got infected. So Hannibal had to go to the vet, and they had to do a tailectomy. They had to cut his tail in half. Tony and I had, a, had Persian cats when we were um, early in our marriage, and we had a, which one was it, Sinjin? Sinjin that got the tail stepped on. You stepped on it, right? Oh, I stepped on it. And... Um, <laughs> Sinjin had to go to the vet and get a tailectomy. Half of Sinjin's tail had to be removed because of the, this wound. Um, somehow, it was not my fault. I don't know how, but I'm sure it wasn't my fault. But, but this is what happened to Hannibal. So they went and they did the tailectomy and they bandaged the wound and they put him in the cone of shame, you know, to keep him from licking it. But he couldn't let it go. Could not, and even with the cone on, he managed to get him to curl himself into a ball and get his tongue on that wound. And he licked it again and licked it and licked it and picked at it. And next thing you know, the infection was back. And they had to go back for a second surgery. And this time, they had to basically remove the tail and give this great big, great Pyrenees dog a bunning tail. And then they had to put him not in a cone, but in like a five-gallon bucket. To get, can you imagine what that must have looked like? 120-pound dog, five-gallon bucket on his head, a little bunny tail on his back. Because he couldn't let it go. He could, so something that shouldn't have mattered that much became much, much bigger because he was a wound licker. We, spiritually, emotionally, we become wound lickers. This is what it looks like. You can't let it go. You lay in bed obsessing about over and over those who have criticized and attacked. And I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not saying it's justified. But we become obsessed with it, and we get bogged down in it. It reminds me, the image I drew from was, was uh, a number of years ago in the property we lived at up, up in uh, San Antonio, Florida. Uh, there was a part, kind of little river bank, if you will, bed that had dried up, or so, or so my father-in-law thought. And he was driving his, his uh, it wasn't his four-wheeler, it was a gator. Um, one day, and he thought it was solid ground, and he drove down into it, and all of a sudden he hit that mud and just stuck and sank. And he couldn't go anymore. He hit that, and he just was stuck. No matter how much he grinded the tires, couldn't move forward anymore, and eventually had to be pulled out. Now, here's the thing. That's what happens to us. We, we get stuck in it, and we don't move anymore. We're just in that, and we're in that moment, and we hold on to it, and we, we become, again, we become moonlickers. We have to learn. And so we begin to ask ourselves, 
how does Jesus handle it? What do we learn from Jesus? Because he faced critics throughout his ministry. Well, what do we know? And this is what I begin. We have to start to try to internalize and work on. And one thing that we learn from Jesus is he does not counterattack. That is an interesting thing. You notice he does not attack his critics. He refutes his critics. He deals with what they have to say. Because the, the religious leaders came at him and say, well, we know why he's driving out demons. He's possessed by a demon. He's, the, he's possessed by Satan. So it's Satan driving out Satan. And Jesus, he, he undermines that argument. That's the, the famous line that is often ascribed to Abraham Lincoln. But it's actually Jesus. A house divided itself it's, cannot stand. He says, no, there's no logic to that. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. So he deals with that, but he does not attack those who would criticize him. He does not even attack his family who criticizes him. Rather, he keeps moving. He focuses on what he's been called to do, and that is to fulfill the will of God. Here is the key phrase in the entire passage, and it's the very last verse. Jesus looks around the inner circle when the family came to get him, and he says, he asks that question, who are my mothers and my brothers? And he looks around and he says, here are my mothers and my brothers. And this is what he says, whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. He basically says that those who join me in being focused on what we've been called to do, which is do the will of the Father, that's my family. And he's not disrespecting his family. In fact, they're invited to be a part of that. His brother would become one of the leaders of the church. So he's not casting his family aside. He's inviting them in as well. But he's saying that I'm united with others who are about what I'm about. And in spite of the criticism, in spite of those who would try to undermine me, in spite of those who cannot see what I've been called to do, my focus is always first and foremost about doing God's will. And so Jesus keeps moving he deals with it and he moves on. He does not get bogged down in his critics. We have to be careful about getting bogged down. We have to learn to let it go because here's a lesson in life. You're going to have more. You're going to have more. I mean, it would be nice if it stopped all of a sudden, but it won't. When we are focused on what God's called us to do, we're going to face critics in life and in our experiences. It reminds me uh, when the builder of the Panama Canal was, when it was in process, he was attacked ruthlessly in the States. Articles were written about his incompetence. He wasn't doing it right. People were saying he should do this. He should, you know, everybody who loves to tell you how you should do your job, you know, those kind of people, he had tons of them. And one day one of his um, underlings got, got very frustrated and he said to him, he said, are you going to respond to your critics? And he said, yeah, yeah, I will, when the canal is built. When the canal is built. In other words, I will let the fruit of my labor be the response of those who would criticize. We were called to be about the things God's called us to be about, to keep moving and let the fruits of our lives and our, our love and our willingness to, to be obedient, let that speak to those who criticize. Now, now let me kind of make a, a side note. We do need to hear. Uh, this is not a sermon saying tune out your critics and don't, ha don't listen to them completely. I think, uh, and I struggle with this. I'm not a model of this. But I'll tell you, when I get criticized and when I get letters, as I occasionally will, and they're not always expressed with the greatest of love, and I get angry and I don't initially respond with a, with a lot of love, there's a lot of 
internal conversations that are not very Christ-like that will happen when those things happen, because I'm human too. But what I try to do, what I prayerfully try to do is step back and go, okay, is there anything in this I need to hear? Is there anything here that God's speaking to me? Maybe not in the manner in which it's coming, but that I need to hear. So I try, try to, to find if there's a lesson in something God's speaking, and then I try to let it go because more will come. And to just let that be something that my life is, is that doesn't, well, that, that doesn't bury me. The story told of the donkey that fell in the well, and the farmer looked down, and he didn't see any movement, and he didn't hear anything, and he thought the donkey was dead. And so he began to do the only thing he knew to do. He figured, I better bury the donkey. So he began to throw dirt in the hole. And the donkey kind of woke up and realized dirt was coming down on him and figured he had to get moving. So as the dirt would come down, he would just pat. And as the dirt would come down, he would just pat. And the next morning, when the hole was filled, the donkey was standing on the top of it. Okay? You know? Sometimes it's, we gotta, we got to just pat. We've got to stay above it and keep moving. That's what Jesus did. He doesn't respond with anger. Now, there, there are times when Jesus does call out his critics. He calls out their behavior. But always, always with a heart of love to bring them and to win them back, to give them the invitation. He never rescinds the invitation. He just lets them choose to believe in what God is doing or to turn away. But, but he always invites them. And that's the last thing. He doesn't respond in anger. He keeps moving. And he never loses sight of, of the value of other people. See, what happens is sometimes we could rise and we just want to dismiss all people. Jesus doesn't do that. And we shouldn't do it. Mother Teresa once said that when she was criticized, when people would come at her with hateful and mean things, I mean, Mother Teresa, for crying out loud, but when they would attack her and what she was doing, she would look at him and she would think to herself, wow, there's Jesus with a distressing disguise. Jesus with a distressing disguise. And what she meant was she looked for Jesus in others. Not that Jesus was motivating their behavior, but she refused to dismiss other people, to devalue them, to see them as anything less. And that's our challenge. That is our hard challenge, to to rise above it, to, to not get bogged down in that, to keep moving, and to not allow that to allow us to devalue other people, really not to become like it. I mean, to ask ourselves, where are we guilty? Because yeah, there, there's a quote in the second century, uh, Celsus, who was a Greek philosopher, an attack, an, op- an opponent of Christian, Christianity. He made a comment once. He said, boy, it's interesting to watch the way that Jews and Christians attack each other, but it pales in comparison to the way Christians attack other Christians. Second century. We still fall into that trap, too. We have to be careful that it becomes a defining thing for us. It didn't for Jesus. He kept about what he was called to do. So should we. It's the inevitable truth. We'll be criticized. But stay about what you're called. Stay about who you're called to follow. And remember this. If it happened to Jesus, of course it's going to happen to us. But he had the power to overcome it and rise above it. And he gives us the power to overcome and rise above it. It's an inevitable truth. But it is not a defining truth. Let's pray. Lord, speak to us and empower us and, and guide us because it is hard. Oh, it's just so hard when we face that unfair criticism from the inside or the outside to, to not respond in anger, to not become jaded, to not become embittered or bogged down. Help us to stay focused on Jesus who gives us the power to rise above. 
and to be about what you've called us to be about, who you've called us to be. Lord, move us in faith and empower us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Christ we pray.